0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.
1: Places and people were connected by presences of many kinds. Places and people were connected by flows of stone, meat and other materials, but were also physically linked by tracks on trails. One might even claim that the first revolution imbuing land with social meaning belonged to Neanderthals, not Homo sapiens. Neanderthals, first kindled history. That is from Kindred, um, a book by Rebecca Rag Sykes that came out last year and which I've been meaning to read ever since it came out. And I would guess that every five years, I I will read a book on the subject, and every five years, I will find that the subject has completely changed. So um, Becky rags book was the kind of the (laughs) the latest
0: iteration of where thinking is on Neanderthals. Dominic, are you a fan of Neanderthals, or, or, or do you... Well, Tom, let me kick off by saying that the last time we had a podcast with a guest, you started with an absolutely, a landmark impersonation, didn't you? Of, uh, of Liam Neeson. That's caused a lot of comment. And I was absolutely bracing myself for you to kick this off with an impersonation of a Neanderthal. Well. And I think it's a, it's a missed opportunity. It's a sad moment for the podcast. But we'll just have to fight our way back and, and hope to win over the listeners some other way. Maybe by the erudition of our guest. But no, I, I do know nothing about Neanderthals. The only thing I know about them, really, is... I, uh, a massive recommendation to the listeners: uh, Gold, William Golding's novel, *The Inheritors*, which I'm I'm poised to learn. It's probably all completely wrong, <laughs> but is an absolutely magnificent novel. If you, if it you, is, even if you've yes. never read any Golding books, it's, for me, it's probably the best. But we can talk about it maybe later in the podcast. Well, so
1: so so the question of how one would impersonate a Neanderthal: Did they talk? What did they sound like? I mean, this is just one of the many topics that i'm hoping that our guest professor chris stringer who is research leader in human evolution at the natural history museum and an absolute hero of mine um he incredibly kindly showed me around the um the display on human evolution the natural history museum Uh, i remember being given his wonderful book homo britannicus by my parents one christmas um he's got other uh, origin of our species britain a million years of the human story our human story you get the drift the person to ask about human evolution, and particularly about the Neanderthals, is Chris Stringer, who is joining us. Chris, thanks so much for coming on. And am I right that, that you, like me, did a, a project on the Neanderthals uh, at primary school, but unlike me, you then went on to become <laughs> absolute <laughs> world expert on it. So thanks so much for
0: coming on.
2: Uh, yes, uh, that is in fact right. Yes, I, I did a project on the avatars. I think I was nine years old. Uh, I was inspired by BBC radio broadcasts on uh, prehistory uh, to do that project. Um, I had drawings of skulls in there and so on. Um, unfortunately, I haven't got it anymore. It's a great shade, but there we are. Yeah, but it was the beginning of something and I couldn't have dreamt I would uh, end up working on this uh, for a career.
0: So, Chris, for people who are are approaching this sort of completely blind, when are we talking about Neanderthals? When and what were they?
2: Okay, yes. So, in fact, Neanderthals and us are relatively late in the whole story of human evolution. So, we think human evolution stretched back at least seven million years. and we and the Neanderthals are part of the last few hundred thousand years of that story. So we and the Neanderthals are relative latecomers. And the Neanderthal story really begins in the 1850s with the discovery in the Neander Valley of a skeleton, a human skeleton, uh, that gave its name to the group, Neander Valley Neanderthal.
0: So that's the German he, That's a, he right, was a German. it found yeah. in
2: Germany, near Düsseldorf, <laughs> uh, in a valley. It was actually found during quarrying, and it was lucky in a way it was recovered at all. I mean, I, the workers threw a lot of the bones out of a cave, and uh, luckily they were spotted and identified as a strange, as human, but a different kind of human. And in 1864, William King, then working in Galway, in Ireland, he he named this a new species of human, Homo neanderthalensis. And in fact, there had been two Neanderthal finds before that that had not been recognised up to then. So in 1830, a, a Neanderthal child skull had been found at Ongies in Belgium, and that took another 100 years to be recognised as Neanderthal. And uh, a skull had been found in Gibraltar in 1848, blasted out of Forbes Quarry. And that sat on a museum shelf in Gibraltar for many years. So it was the Neander Valley find that, that kind of got the glory and gave its name to the group. Oh, but so Gibraltar. So actually, it's British. <laughs> well, you could, <laughs> yes, you, you could make that claim, or Belgian, or Belgian. Yeah, or Belgian. Yeah. Yes. 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 yes, yes, yeah.
1: Am I right that the the name is is kind of given and announced in 1859, which is the same year as as um, the Origin of Species is published.
2: Well, there were there were descriptions of the skeleton uh, before that, uh, but we know that the Gibraltar skull actually was seen by Charles Darwin. Oh, was it? After he'd written Origin of Species, but he was shown the skull uh, a couple of years later, the Gibraltar skull, um, and of course Darwin was aware of the the find from the Neander Valley. Um, and it was the the naming in 1864 that obviously started this debate about who these people were. Yeah, were they different species? Were they some kind of version of modern humans? So there was a debate straight away. Some people even thought the remains from Neander Valley were pathological; that this was some sort of diseased modern human. It's a Cossack, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. right. There was a very extreme view that this was some Cossack soldier, a horseman. And he'd been wounded in battle and he crawled into a cave in Germany and he died there. And the agony of, of his pain in the last few days led to these brow ridges developing on his on his head.
0: Oh, right. So after the after the Napoleonic Wars or something. That's
2: right. Yes, that's right. So he would be a victim of a, a Cossack from the Napoleonic Wars. Um, so, yes, there were some pretty extreme views around and gradually... It was recognised that, you know, the Neander, Huxley recognised that the Neander Valley skeleton, the skull cap, had a big brain as big as a modern human. So that was recognised early on. But of course, the bones of the skeleton were slightly differently shaped from our own. And there was this big brow ridge over the eyes, yeah. which was
0: obviously quite distinctive. So before this, Chris, did people have any conception that there would have been human relatives, as it were, or was this an absolute kind of bolt from the blue?
2: Uh, it, it was a, a bolt from, it was the first ancient kind of human recognized. So fossil human skeletons had been found earlier. So there was one from Paviland Cave, uh, in, in Wales found in the 1820s, but that was a modern human. So although it was, there was debate about it being prehistoric. Uh, in fact, the, the general view was that it might be even just a Roman age skeleton and not very ancient. So people had very little conception of how deep human history would would end up going. Uh, There were still, of course, some people working on biblical timescales of just a few thousand years for the whole story. But, of course, geologists like Charles Lyell were arguing that actually, you know, the Earth history went back millions of years. And so some people did speculate that humans could go back a long way. But it was the Neanderthal Neander, Neander skeleton that really started this debate about ancient humans that were potentially different from us.
1: Chris, the, in The Origin of Species, Darwin famously does not talk about human evolution. Uh, and he does then go on uh, in The Tent of Man to talk about it. How unsettling is the discovery of, of Neanderthals to human conceptions of themselves? And how does it kind of feed through into, I don't know, kind of ideas of um, scientific racism, hierarchy of races and things like that, that really kind of takes off after, after the origin of species?
2: Yeah, so of course it it does get drawn into that debate. So so Huxley, uh, recognising that this was large-brained, he in a sense saw the Neander Valley skeleton or the, the skull in particular as being one end of a long chain of humans that was you know Neanderthal with very large brow ridges at the other, at one end, and then moving through you know some more recent human finds, and there were more recent human finds that had bigger brow ridges than others. So for Huxley, this was one end of a long chain of, uh, of humanity. Uh, so I suppose, you know, he would have argued it could even be an extreme form of Homo sapiens, our own species. Uh, but then there were other people, as I say, who named it as a distinct species. William King described, you know, really quite a lot of pr- very primitive and you could say bestial features on this Neanderthal. So straight away, there was a debate there about, was this just a different kind of modern human? Or could it be something really different and with the ideas of evolution much more primitive? And by the time we get to the 1900s, of course, no really ancient fossils have been found in places like Africa. So the African fossil discoveries that we know about now, those only started to appear in the 1920s. So in the early 1900s, people were looking for kind of so-called missing links. Yeah. And there had been a find in Java. Uh, that we now know is a Homo erectus, uh, and that was really quite ape-like. And the Neanderthals were also in that debate. And some of the reconstructions of Neanderthals made them very ape-like. They were depicted as being bent-kneed, yeah. uh, grasping big toes, very hairy, head hung forward, not walking fully erect. So there was that debate going on about them being a, really an ape-like form of human, a sort of missing link. Um, whereas you know now, of course, the the debate about Neanderthals has moved on. I think it's it's much more difficult to say the Neanderthals were even culturally inferior to modern humans who were around at the same time. So the the behavioural gap between Neanderthals and us has narrowed. Some people would say it's disappeared. Um, and I think there is this risk of, of you know getting them into this debate about inferiority and superiority, and it's part of this misconception that you know, all these human forms were evolving to be towards us, that we were some kind yeah. of perfection of humanity and everything was evolving to be like us. And if they evolved to be like us, they were successful. And if they didn't evolve to be like us, they were unsuccessful. So there is that debate as well. And yes, it does link into this idea of superiority, What you know, modernity, you know, the fact that we're so numerous around the world um, and apparently so successful, Means that some people see us as the kind of height of evolution. Uh, whereas, you know, I'm a paleontologist in a paleontology department and I, you know, I see us as just a- another form of animal in a sense. We're very successful in numbers, but whether we're successful in the long term, we're, we're newcomers in evolution.
0: Could you not then, though, say that we, we clearly were more successful than Neanderthals, um, as evidenced by the fact that there are an awful lot of us and there are none of them? I mean, would that be too simplistic a way of of putting it?
2: Uh, Well, it's one way of measuring success. But if you were measuring success in terms of numbers, then things like bacteria um, or other other forms of life would be more successful than us. Right. And obviously, you know, if we look at the way our planet is and the health of our planet at the moment, uh, you could see that our success might seem great. But, uh, you know, how successful we will look in a few thousand years is another story. So in geological time, as I say, we and the ne- Neanderthals are newcomers to the story. Um, and I think, you know, Homo erectus on conventional views, that species of human lasted for at least one and a half million years. So we've got a long way to go to match that yeah. in terms of longevity. So I think it depends what you measure by success. Is it just about numbers? It's also about your effect on the environment, how successful you are in the long term. And I think. There's, you know, there's certainly doubts about how successful we're going to be in the long <laughs> yeah. term as a species.
1: Well, so, so Chris, picking up on that, um, one of the reasons why I um, I, I quoted uh, Becky Sykes's wonderful book w- with that thing Neanderthals first kindled history. So this is a history podcast. Does it make sense to think of Neanderthals as offering us as Homo sapiens a kind of an alternative sense of how history might have evolved? Um, Because you're basically saying that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens constitute kind of two divergent ways of being human. And if we if we have history and it's made up of how we interact with one another, how we interact with the environment, how we've kind of developed a culture over the course of the millennia. Can we say the same about Neanderthals? Did Neanderthals also construct something that we would recognise as a kind of historical culture, perhaps?
2: I think it depends how you define history and, and culture. Uh, um, I think that obviously these people were surviving at the time with, with a culture. They had a, a whole suite of features and behaviours that they passed on through time. So in a sense, they were creating history in that way. They probably did tell stories and pass them down. They probably had language. Modern humans did too. And it's not just about even us and Neanderthals, because we know there was another kind of human over in East Asia called the Denisovans. And they're a third kind of human. And in fact, looking more widely, in the last 100,000 years, there were at least five kinds of humans around on the earth. So it's not even just us and Neanderthals. There were all these different experiments in how to be a human. Uh, We're the one that survived. The others disappeared. And and obviously, one of the big questions is, why are we the only ones left of all these experiments to be human?
0: As a complete outsider, can I ask a quick definitional question? Um, So we and Neanderthals and Denisovans, for example, are all human. But what is a human? Is it just a particular kind of ape? Or or what, what is the definition?
2: Yeah, that's that's a good question, and and there isn't agreement on experts. So for me, the genus Homo, so we're Homo sapiens, the Neanderthals. I call them Homo neanderthalensis. Um, membership of the genus Homo for me is what it is is what is being human, and being in that genus, uh, the representatives have larger brains, they have a, a human shaped body, they have technology, um, and and so on. So there are certain features in the skeleton that. That we can pick up in fossils to determine whether something's human or not. Now, for some people, human is a term they would only apply to Homo sapiens, our own species. Um, I I find that a bit worrying because it means Neanderthals aren't human. Um, and as we're going to come on to discuss, no doubt, um, we have interbred with the Neanderthals and with the Denisovans. So, in a sense, that means we, as humans, didn't we, we interbred with non-humans? I think that's really pushing the arguments in a, in a, in a strange direction. So for me, membership of the genus Homo means human. So yes, we in Neanderthals are, are Homo. So we are human. So I'm, I just see them, as you say, as another model of human, another way to be human. In a sense, we've, maybe we got lucky. That could be why we're here and they're not. We just got lucky. Certain things happen in our prehistory that helped us survive. And, the, and in the Neanderthals' case, things turned against them. But we should bear in mind, with all of this, that they're not completely gone. Yeah. And of course, we'll come on to this. But yes, they're physically extinct, uh, and may have gone extinct around forty thousand years ago physically. But they live on in our in our DNA. So you know, each of us now in this in this podcast have Neanderthal DNA around the level of probably two percent. So, you know, we've all got a bit of Neanderthal in our DNA, and that's true for the majority of people of the world today. So the Neanderthals have not disappeared completely, and neither have the Denisovans. Their DNA lives on in uh, billions of people today as well.
1: The way that Neanderthals have been understood since they were first discovered. So, as you said, to begin with, they're kind of cast as savage, brutish, ape-like. And then, am I right? that I mean, for instance, in in William Golding's book that Dominic mentioned, The Inheritors, um the inheritors are homo sapiens and and we see the the, the world through neanderthal eyes and i am get i mean I'm guessing I don't know enough about the the book actually but I'm guessing that it's kind of influenced by um decolonization the idea that
0: uh, kind of anxiety about western colonialism yeah. perhaps well it's golding's sense of human evil tom that's what it is it's kind of yeah. humans are, are cruel and corrupt and and they get in of the flies and yeah, things. absolutely yeah. yeah
1: and then chris am i right that in the 60s at a site in kurdistan in in northern iraq called Shanidar, which is one of the great sites for, for neanderthal archaeology a body was found a neanderthal body was found that seemed to be a grave and it was thought to be a grave because there appeared to have been flowers wreaths laid there and I, I gather that this is no longer thought to, to have been the case but in the 60s it, you know the age of flower power this kind of gave an image of neanderthals not as brutish and thuggish but kind of peace-loving wiped out by the sinister intrusion of of homo sapiens and and now have we moved on from that to a position where we're saying that you know what what were the relations between homo sapiens and and, and neanderthals presumably if they're interbreeding It's not either that one is preying on the other necessarily, but they might have kind of interacted.
2: Yes. I mean, if we can come back, if you can come back to that particular question, and I'm going to go back in time about this whole question of the image of the Neanderthals first. So, yes, um, a reconstruction was made of a Neanderthal skeleton from France, from La Chapelle. Um, And this reconstruction really emphasised the distinctiveness um, of the Neanderthals. And it was very influential. But the debate about the nature of the Neanderthals does go way back. So there was always this debate about human, how human they were, how like as they were, and the pendulum has swung backwards and forwards on this question. So after that reconstruction by the of the Ch- La Chapelle Neanderthal, we find H.G. Wells writing uh, a story called The Grizzly Folk, where he really does paint the Neanderthals as being very distinct and, and very you know a, a sort of dark side if you like of humanity yeah, warlocks yes like the warlocks it's that yeah. sort of image almost and golding's is a reaction against that so the inheritors paints them as like children of nature um relatively innocent in a way um, and it's as you say it's the it's the modern humans of the bad guys and of course that was you know if we look at uh, Lord of the Flies you know we've got that that dual nature of humanity showing up you know humanity as being potentially Cruel. And so the way the modern humans treat the Neanderthals is, is, is cruel. You know, it's a sort of genocide almost, you could say. Yeah. So yes, Golding is looking at those issues. It's the other side of the mirror. And as you say, they're moving on to the 1960s with Shanidar. Um, yes, uh, Ralph Selecki, who led the excavations at Shanidar, wrote a book called uh, Neanderthals, the first flower children, I think it was called, or the first flower, <laughs> right. uh, very much a book of its time. Uh, and yes, so the pendulum has swung backwards and forwards. Let's say we go on to the 1990s. I think the pendulum had swung away from that image of the Neanderthals to make them more distinct. You know, we had evolved in Africa. And there must be something about the African environment that gave us superiority. Uh, Maybe we developed cave art and we developed sophisticated tools. And that led us to do well in Africa and then come out of Africa and then very quickly replace the Neanderthals. Um, And so that was the view maybe in the 1990s, the predominant view. But then as we get into the 2000s, we start to see the pendulum swing back again as more and more discoveries are made, which show that the Neanderthals were matching modern humans, let's say, a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand years ago, in in their complexity of behaviour, and those discoveries are still coming through. And so now, as I say, that the, if there is a behavioural gap, it's a very narrow one. And I think probably we should look at the Neanderthals as being very successful in their own right in what they did, and we were successful in our own right in what we did. We shared many behaviours with them, but there were some distinctions. Um, and I think that. Our survival, you know, probably was a matter of luck as well as perhaps being in the right place and the right time with the right little bits of behaviour that that gave us success. And it may have even been down to numbers in the end that the Neanderthals had been living in an environment where there were very severe climate changes happening repeatedly. Every few thousand years, the climate in Europe switched back from nearly as warm as the present day to bitterly cold. These changes happened very rapidly and they happened every few hundred or few thousand years. So I think the Neanderthals were never able to build up their numbers under those circumstances. So their diversity, their numbers were reduced. They had low genetic diversity. They had low numbers. And so in a sense, maybe they were already a threatened species. And then modern humans came out of Africa about 60,000 years ago, started entering the territory of the Neanderthals, and that may have eventually just destabilised them so much that they they just went extinct.
0: Does that mean you could almost draw a map? Tom was talking about history, and and you know one of the way we don't just make sense of history through stories, we make sense of history through illustrations and maps. Does that mean you could almost draw a map and you could say this these bits are kind of human inhabited, or sorry, modern human kind of Homo sapiens inhabited, and these bits are kind of Neanderthal territory or something? I mean, because you're suggesting that they're in different places, basically.
2: Yeah. So we don't have the data to put them on the map at the same time in the same places, except in a couple of places. So broadly speaking, the Neanderthals were in occupation of Europe from their lineage, at least from, from more than 400,000 years ago down to about 40,000 years ago. Most of the fossils we find are Neanderthal in that, in that time zone, but there are a few exceptions. So there is a, a fossil from Greece that I was involved in studying from a site called Epidema uh, in, in the Peloponnese. And that cave site has what seems to be a, a, a Homo sapiens fossil over 200,000 years old, and then after it, a Neanderthal fossil. So there we've got what may be a brief appearance of modern humans, or at least Homo sapiens, over 200,000 years ago in the eastern Mediterranean, but then it goes again. And what we and then we come on to the period between forty and fifty thousand years ago, and it looks like we have a kind of a similar story that modern humans are kind of appearing in in Europe briefly but then disappearing again. so the Neanderthals remain the main occupants of Europe until about forty thousand years ago when they go extinct. but modern humans are making if you like, incursions, dispersals into modern human, into Neanderthal territory. And eventually, by about 41,000 years, modern humans are there in sufficiently large numbers that they effectively take over from the Neanderthals. And one of the interesting things is, and this is purely speculation because we don't have all the data, is that we know that a number of those modern humans that were moving into Neanderthal territory over 40,000 years ago, a number of them show signs of interbreeding with the Neanderthals and so it's possible that Neanderthal individuals, male or female, were being taken into the modern human groups. Now if the Neanderthals were fewer in number, they're losing prime age breeding individuals into the modern human groups and that would be one way in which they might have just faded away because if you're taking prime age adults breeding individuals out of a population, that population is not going to be able to sustain itself if that behaviour continues. So What's odd is that the late Neanderthals we have DNA for don't show evidence of DNA from modern humans. So either the interbreeding was mainly going one way into modern human gene pools and Neanderthals are being taken out of their own gene pool. Or the interbreeding in the other direction was unsuccessful and those individuals did not survive uh, to breed on, so we're beginning to learn about this interesting phase and how the interbreeding even happened. We yeah. we don't really know the details. Was it friendly? Was it you know hostile? Cap- capturing females, yeah. for example, yeah. um, which does happen sometimes in chimpanzee groups and and some hunter gatherer groups. Uh, was it adopting from babies? Um, those are all possibilities, and, and indeed, all of those things could have happened at different times in different places. So eventually, we'll have more data to actually reconstruct how these people were interbreeding, it would be possible one day to tell whether it was the interbreeding of Neanderthals was mainly through females
0: or males or... How? How will we possibly... How how do we know that? Forgive my ignorance.
2: Well, because, because of the X and Y chromosomes, for example, that obviously males have uh, an X and a Y chromosome, females have uh, two X chromosomes. Of course, there are other chromosome mixtures as well, but those are the two main mixtures. And so eventually... Uh, Geneticists will be able to reconstruct, you know, the Neanderthal DNA that's coming in. Amazing. Could it be mediated through, mainly through females or males?
0: So if it was females, that might imply that they were kind of slaves or, or that they were being kidnapped for breeding purposes, basically.
2: Yes, yes, uh, it's possible. Uh, or it might be even the, 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 the mating systems of these people meant that the females were mobile and moving into male groups predominantly rather than the other way around. So there could even be social reasons why it might be in that direction. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot to learn about this time period, and it will be interesting to see how the data unfold on this.
1: Chris, we we really ought to go for a break. And, and when we come back, I would love to talk about what we, we can say about Neanderthal society, presumably societies. I'm guessing there were lots of different kinds. But just just on this topic, I mean, what, what seems really interesting about the way that Neanderthals have been understood right from the beginning is that they've kind of presided, provided um, a mirror that is held up to anxieties and assumptions among contemporary societies. Uh, and the way that we've understood Neanderthals has kind of evolved as our cultural, political sensibilities have evolved as well. And I'm guessing that that at the moment, with all the DNA, with all the kind of scientific study, with all the kind of objectivity that, that scientists like yourself bring to it, nevertheless, these are quite politically sensitive areas. The, the, the question of migration, of population replacement, all this kind of stuff. Do you think that... Um, you know, just as in the 60s, people were seeing uh, flower power reflected back in burial sites and so on. Do you think now with all the kind of current political anxieties that, that are roiling Western societies, is is that still going on? In other words, is, is how we understand Neanderthals and particularly their relationship to, to Homo sapiens kind of determined by politics as much as by science?
2: Well, it's certainly coming into it now. So there are some people who think that uh... Even calling the Neanderthals a different species is is dangerous. It's it's in a sense racist uh, that we're setting up you know differences in humanity, which can then be you know applied to you know populations today. Um, I, I take a different view because for me, uh, our species Homo sapiens we can diagnose it by shared features. That is how we do it. We look at the shared features of modern humans around the world today. And that's how we can say the Neanderthals are a different species because they don't show those shared features. Equally, geneticists can look at the modern human genome and they can find a suite of features there which are characterized by modern humans around the world, which we don't find in the Neanderthals. So for me, having the Neanderthals as a distinct species doesn't, in a sense, produce racial divisions within modern humans. For me, it's the opposite. I think, you know, what unites us is what unites us as a species compared with the Neanderthals and these earlier human species.
1: Brilliant. Okay, so um, we'll take a break now. When we come back, maybe we could look at and, and work out what we know about how Neanderthals lived.
0: Welcome back to The Rest is History. Uh, Chris Stringer, Professor Chris Stringer, has been replenishing his energy with some, some fruit. Tom Holland has been honing his Neanderthal impression, which I'm reliably <laughs> assured he will be doing at the end of this uh, episode. And Tom, you had a question for Chris, didn't you, about uh, what we know of Neanderthals, so both physically and kind of socially. Well, I guess, so Chris, I
1: guess Dominic has laid down this challenge that I have to do with an impression of of a Neanderthal. Would we have any way of knowing what a Neanderthal sounded like? I mean, presumably they they have language. Um, What can we say about language, how they sounded? What do we know about that?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question. Obviously, uh, it's a question of great interest, and it's one of the most difficult ones to answer, of course. So... Some people have tried to reconstruct what a Neanderthal would sound like from the anatomy, uh, and possibly their voice box was uh not as deeply placed as ours, so they may have actually had a higher-pitched voice.
0: Oh. <laughs> well, there's...
2: I'm looking forward to <laughs> your yeah, reconstruction, this is be so good. Uh, Tom. <laughs> if you search on the BBC... uh website you'll find a very amusing reconstruction there a modern attempt to sound like a neanderthal
0: it won't be as amusing as this one
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's very amusing and perhaps tom should view that before he does his uh, i might reconstruction. Just that. but it's very funny i i recommend you find it and have a laugh but in reality yes of course they may have been slightly different in sound um we can tell from the uh, ear bones actually are preserved of neanderthals to compare with modern humans and they are slightly differently shaped to our own ear bones, but when you test the acoustic properties of the Neanderthal hearing system as much as we can reconstruct it, it seems to be similar to our own in its range of hearing. So at least from that point of view, similar. Um, And some people think that the Neanderthal vocal tract would not have been as versatile as ours. It couldn't produce as many sounds, That's, that's a possibility. Uh, But of course, there was a really, let's say, extreme reconstruction of Neanderthals that suggested they only had 20% of the vocal repertoire uh, of sounds that we could make. But as someone pointed out at the time, there are many modern human languages that only make 20% of the sounds you could make. So on its own, that wouldn't limit the Neanderthals. Language is a product of the brain and language evolves out of social complexity. So for me, we know from their archaeology that the Neanderthals led complex lives um and i think that that signifies they would have had some form of speech and language and it may not have been as complex as the language we're using now perhaps their language did not have concepts of deep time we don't know uh abstraction we don't know but certainly in practical terms i think the Neantals must have had language um they're leading complex lives they're surviving under difficult conditions they're hunting difficult animals um they're they're moving over the landscape uh, in complex ways uh, and living in relatively large groups. So I think I would certainly give them a language capability. So the
1: idea that they have very high pitched voices seems counterintuitive because um, physically they're larger than humans, are they? they? They kind of have to eat more. The energy demands on them are greater.
2: Obviously, we've got to remember that modern humans around the world vary greatly in size and shape. So it depends who we're comparing them with. But yes, compared with, you know, let's say the average European, uh, Neanderthals were shorter and wider. And they were heavily bodied. So they were very muscular um, and very powerfully built, very powerful upper body. Uh, you probably wouldn't want to get in a wrestling match with a Neanderthal.
0: So they're more like, more like me than like Tom. Uh,
2: yeah, I, 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 don't want, I don't want to have stereotypes, but maybe, maybe.
0: Do that DNA test, Dominic.
2: We don't know how much hair they had, Dominic.
0: Right, that's,
1: that's, a, bit, that's a bit worrying.
2: Um, yes, yeah, so even body hair, we don't know. Obviously, the reconstructions of Neanderthals through time, if we look at them, we can see this pendulum swinging of making them look very human or very subhuman. Um, and now the reconstructions in museums, including our own in London, show them as very human and relatively hairless. But of course, we don't actually know how much body hair they had. And it probably varied through time. Um, at times, they lived in very cold conditions and a short and wide body would be a good body shape to have because you're minimising your surface area t- to save heat. Um, they may have had layers of subcutaneous fat uh, to help them in that adaptation. Um And I'm sure their culture, you know, they would have had some form of clothing. um, They would have had shelters, things like that. But of course, most of the evidence of that has disappeared. But now and again, we do find very strange structures that were made by Neanderthals. So um, there's a site in France called Bruniquel, a Bruniquel cave, uh, one of Many caves in in that Bruniquel area. And one very deep cave has a, a, an astonishing discovery. So deep in the cave, hundreds of meters in the dark zone of that cave, um, archaeologists have recovered uh, a couple of stone structures deep in this cave. Uh, they're basically elliptical structures, which are basically dry stone walls made out of um, stalagmites. So the Neanderthals went deep into this cave, way beyond the daylight zone. They must have had uh, fire to do that lighting. And they took stalagmites, broke them up and built like dry stone walls to make these elliptical structures. There are at least two of them. And, you know, that's, that's all we've got at the moment of these strange structures deep in the cave. Why were they there? Was this some kind of ritual behavior? Were they living down in the cave? Um, the area has yet to be excavated systematically. So we don't really know what there are are signs of, of bones that have been burnt. So some animal bones are high in fat uh, and they can actually be burnt for light. And so actually they were burning pieces of bone at, at this site uh, to provide light. Um, it's possible this was, I mean, this was during a cold phase about 175,000 years ago and maybe the cave actually was relatively warmer we know that a river actually went through the cave. So it it came from the surface through the cave and then out again to the surface. So it's possible the Neanderthals were tracking that river in going down into the cave. But why they would have set up this camp, if that's what it is, deep in the cave like that, uh is is a question we simply cannot answer and some people think it signifies some ritual behavior yeah um i think it might be a more practical thing that they were actually living down there but we we simply don't know but it shows the complexity of their behavior because it could be not much later
1: cave art or something i mean kind of monumental or some temple or something like that is that going too far
2: you know, archaeologists, you know, the joke is that, you know, when an archaeologist can't explain something, they say <laughs> yeah. it's a richer object. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. and, and that's what we're up against here with this, this structure. We simply don't know what it is and when it can be excavated systematically. So what we, what we don't know is what's actually on the floor of these structures. that hasn't been excavated yet. So if there are stone tools and butchered animal bones, then obviously they were living there. But if there aren't any of those things, then that might promote the belief that this is some kind of special ritual structure and and you mentioned cave art and of course that's that's one of the things that more than 20 years ago was supposed to separate us from the neanderthals so in africa we were developing symbolic expression Uh, we were using red ochre and we were engraving and um, and when we came out of africa we started to paint caves and these beautiful cave paintings of uh, of animals that we find in, in many caves. Apparently, that was something the Neanderthals simply couldn't do. But we now know that there are many sites where there's lots of ochre, red ochre and dark pigments uh, collected by Neanderthals in, in really large quantities. Now, some of it, you know, you can use ochre for practical purposes, uh, apparently softening skins, apparently rubbing on the skin as an insecticide, Um things like that. But there's so much of it uh, that it looks like it was being used for marking bodies and potentially marking cave walls. And now from Spain, there are sites dating from more than 60,000 years ago which have markings on the walls that seem to be made by Neanderthals. It is controversial. There are some people who challenge the dating. But, you know, I think it's quite likely with all that pigment around that Neanderthals were marking their bodies and we know that Neanderthals made pendants. They made jewelry. You know, we have examples of pierced, uh, animal teeth from Neanderthal sites. We have shells with holes in that look like they've been suspended and even colored with ochre. Um, and, uh, you know, there are even talons, uh, of, of birds of prey that look like they've been suspended, uh, as jewelry or pendants. So the Neanderthals had that. They were signaling to each other. In a way that we would see as very, very human.
1: And Chris, what about burials? So, so the, the idea in the '60s that they were buried with with flowers is not thought to be true anymore. But there is evidence that they were they had some sense, perhaps, of of an afterlife. That they were they weren't just kind of leaving bodies to rot.
2: Yes, that's right. So, I think you know, for me, there is enough more than enough evidence that Neanderthals were burying their dead. The fact that we've got so many Neanderthal skeletons. Uh, some people have challenged that these were intentional burials, that these were individuals whose body just washed into a crevice in a cave, or it was a rock fall and the Neanderthal was buried under a load of rocks. Um, that could certainly have happened, but I think there are enough examples now that we can say that Neanderthals intentionally buried their dead and not just adults. This is, these are burials of children as well. So yes, I think they buried their dead. Now, of course, interpreting why they did it is, is another Yeah, issue. another matter. Um, yeah. Uh, was it you know did it start off as hygienic maybe that they didn't want to leave a body out on the surface to attract hyenas and uh, and dangerous other predators um so the bodies were covered up um just to get them out of the way um perhaps uh, it could be an extension of, of care because one of the individuals from Shanidar um Shanidar 1 the first one that was discovered probably a burial that individual was severely disabled for the last at least probably 10 years of his life so
3: that's amazing um,
2: yeah yes he he was a cripple uh possibly blind in one eye and so it seems very likely people were provisioning for him um, and maybe the burial of that individual is is caring for the body after death so you've invested this care in that person during their life and you invest care when they die as well whether there's a concept of an afterlife maybe that is an add-on at a later stage but who knows? Neanderthals could have had that concept, too. Well, Chris, so, so is there
1: any sense that, um, I mean, if we look at, at, at Homo sapiens, history, in a sense, I mean, we can cast it as a, as a tale of progress. And I use the word very advisedly, but technological advances leading to ever more complicated societies. Do we do we have any sense of that happening with the Neanderthals? Is there a sense that their society is becoming more technologically advanced are they differing evolving changing over time
2: well i think they must have been uh, there's certainly a change a uh, significant change of behavior that we see both in neanderthals and modern human ev- evolution where the earliest examples of uh probably the neanderthal lineage and the sapiens lineage uh, are associated with stone tools that we call hand axes so these are uh almond shaped often uh or, or pointed uh, bifacially worked tools. They sit in the hand nicely and we call them hand axes. We don't know what the people at the time called them, of course. So these hand axes were associated with early Neanderthals and with early Homo sapiens in in Africa. But about 300,000 years ago, there's a switch in behavior uh, and we start to see the appearance of what are called prepared prepared core t- tools, uh, sometimes called Levallois tools. And there the shape of the artifact is predetermined. You map out in the core the shape you want your your flake to be, and then you strike it off with a single blow, and you have a, a predetermined shape of tool. So this technology spreads across much of the Neanderthal and early Homo sapiens world, and that's then the dominant technology for the next 200,000 years. So there is that change that goes on in both Neanderthals and early Homo sapiens, um, and even within that, you do see many different tool types. So within Neanderthals, we see them capable of producing tools that would have been good for working skins. So they're wearing clothes? We assume so, yeah. I mean, again, the evidence is, you know, there's no direct evidence for that really. But the fact they've got, this technology which which and we know that the tools themselves show wear on them sometimes there are bone tools that have been used to which today would be used to rub skins and they show a polish on the end so those tools are known from neanderthal sites so neanderthals were pretty certainly working skins for clothing i mean they're living in at times Cold, very severe yeah. winters yeah so we assume they must have had some form of clothing
0: chris what about their social their social structure do they have because you've alluded a few times to their social structure but are they in you saying they're in big groups, but do we have any sense of, are they big enough groups to be like a clan or a tribe or an extended family or, or what do we think they are?
2: Yeah, we, we can't really say about numbers in total. Um, I mean, people have reconstructed that groups within caves, when you look at flint scatters and sizes of habitation, that Neanderthals could be in groups of 20 or 30. Um, but... Whether they were in much bigger aggregations at times, we simply don't know. Um, As I mentioned already, probably towards the end of their time, there's genetic evidence that the Neanderthals were relatively low in variation. And there's some evidence of inbreeding in some Neanderthal sites. We see from the DNA that individuals are closely related. uh, And there's a site in Spain where you have uh, quite a few anomalies in the skeletons of the Neanderthals from that site that suggest that they could have been into breeding inbreeding and therefore you know that's not good for the genetic health of the population. Yeah. So at times the Neanderthals were challenged and there's the tricky matter of cannibalism. We haven't come on to that one yet, but we know that both both Neanderthals and uh, modern humans have indulged in cannibalism. Um, and we see this in a number of Neanderthal sites where you find human remains of Neanderthals with cut marks on them. Um, so these individuals have been defleshed. Uh, and so is that for consumption? Uh, is it some kind of ritual behavior, ritual treatment of the dead? So are they, are they eating their enemies or is it more a tribute to the dead? And those are both possibilities. I mean, the thing about that is that it,
1: again it's like a kind of rorschach test do you think that humans are naturally good or bad savage and violent or do you think that they care for the dead and whatever um maybe it's both a bit of both but i mean it it is a kind of philosophical divide isn't it
2: yeah i mean i i simply don't know the answer to that um and and you've Certainly if you speak to an archaeologist, you know, you, you will get both sides of the of the story there. That there is a view that one reason why we survived is that we were less aggressive within our groups, that we were friendlier. Survival of the friendliest that modern really? humans
0: Yeah. I find that very counterintuitive. Within our groups. Okay.
2: Within our groups, I say. Of course, outside your group yeah. is a different story, apparently. And so modern humans were able to build larger numbers of people with Friendly relations within that group, a reduction of aggression. Um, and the Neanderthals and these other humans had lower, had higher levels of interpersonal aggression. Um, and we managed to reduce that. And that was part of the reason for our success. Now, these are just obviously ideas. And I'm not capable or even yeah. competent
0: to judge whether, uh, that those ideas are correct, but it's certainly one possibility. That's fascinating though, because it challenges the idea. That is so common in popular culture that humanity, that Homo sapiens, succeeded because of our unpleasantness. You know that we were more cunning and more cruel and all these kinds of things.
2: Yes, I mean that's back to the inheritors' image, of course. That that, you know we 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 basically killed off the Neanderthals, Um, and there is a view that uh, around that that yeah we we kind of killed them off in some long term warfare. But the coexistence in Europe and Asia from 60,000 to 40,000, that's at least 20,000 years of some kind of coexistence of the two groups, including what we now know are multiple examples of interbreeding between the two groups. So, you know, it's certainly not, uh, you know, instantaneous aggression and warfare. And, uh, you know, I often think that, you know, the extinction of the Neanderthals was kind of a, it could even be accidental. It wasn't intentional. So, you know, orangutans in Southeast Asia are going extinct, not because people want them to go extinct, but, you know, we're removing their food, we're removing their living sites, we're removing their environments, and they are going extinct. We didn't intend it, but it happens. And that's what's happened to so many species probably around the world. Um, uh, I'm sure when people arrived in New Zealand, their first intention wasn't to kill off all the large native birds, but that's what happened. Um, and so the extinction of the Neanderthals, at least the physical extinction, and I stress not the genetic extinction, the physical extinction of the Neanderthals could have been uh, not intentional. Modern humans weren't going out to, to do them in and finish them off. But by taking prime age individuals out of their breeding pool, by hunting the same animals, by collecting the same plant resources, by wanting to live in the best cave sites, automatically they were doing that to the detriment of the Neanderthals.
1: Maybe we impacted on on Neanderthals in the way that that we impacted on megafauna a, a, across the world. That we may not even deliberately have hunted them or anything, but that we just yeah, that's right. Do you think that's the likeliest explanation?
2: I mean, there are there are claims that there are a couple of examples of interpersonal violence that could be between a Neanderthal and a Sapiens, but I don't think those are sure for me. They they could equally be Neanderthals uh, that are you know there's a one of the Shanidar Neanderthals has a, has a wound. On one of his ribs that's partly healed because they had spears right yeah they had spears so uh, you know someone said well that maybe that's a modern human doing that well we have no idea and equally it could have been a neanderthal doing it it could even have been a hunting accident you know we can't be sure um of the cause there so what we can say is that we're beginning to find increasing evidence of these groups in close proximity we don't have the dating precision to say that they're actually there at the same time. But the fact the interbreeding happened on multiple occasions means those populations must have been in close proximity and partners are moving for whatever reason between one group and the other and and those children, those hybrid children we call them that, they're being
0: brought up within yeah. a modern
2: human group. And they're and they're continuing, you know, in that group and they're breeding on in that group.
0: Just a question where I think we're very close to the end now, aren't we, Tom? But um just a question about the the afterlife of the Neanderthals. So two of our listeners sent in questions about um whether they live on in myths and legends, Stefan Jensen and Metaburbia, whether after the Neanderthals sort of physically vanished from the scene, whether they lived on as giants, trolls, orcs, or these things which are there in almost all myths and kind of folkloric stories. Do you think there could be some kind of vestige of a, a time when we walk the earth together? A Jungian memory. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's obviously going to have to be very deep time because we're talking 40,000 years. And for me, that's a difficult thing to, to establish. But uh, Bjorn Ten, uh, a paleontologist, he wrote a series of novels also about the Neanderthal-modern human interface and interaction. And, and they are really good as well, and I recommend them. One called Dance of the Tiger. Uh, and in there the modern humans call the neanderthals trolls that is their name for them so right. you know there is that implication there that this particularly Kotem was from scandinavia so that's yeah. where that legends those legends are very it would strong. be
0: odd if there weren't a kind of buried memory somewhere deep within us that there were once you know other creatures who were like us but were not us if you know what i mean do you not think
2: it's a long time, and the same applies over in Flores. So, in uh, Flores, we've got this weird yeah, the hobbits. creature, you know, nicknamed the Hobbit, Homo floresiensis, and it was around until probably around till fifty thousand years ago. And there are folk tales of strange little creatures living in the woods in Southeast Asia. Uh, are those some kind of memories from forty thousand years ago of of the Hobbit, or are they actually referring to the orangutan or the gibbon or some other uh, creatures that live in the woods? So. I think those memories are certainly there. But for me, that's such deep time. Yeah. I, I don't know that really there could be a survival
1: like that. Chris, before we go, just one last question. Do you have any sense? Have Have people begun to think about whether, in the wake of the pandemic, whether the Neanderthals might have been wiped out by some pandemic, perhaps? Is this something that is starting
2: to surface in Neanderthal studies? Yes. I mean, that has come up that... Uh, you know, we, we had evolved in Africa. The Neanderthals had been evolving in Europe and Asia. So we could have brought diseases from Africa that the Neanderthals had no immunity to. And that's, that's been proposed. Um, certainly there could have been those. There would have been, if the, if the populations were in contact, then there could certainly be an exchange of, of pathogens and parasites between them. Mm-hmm. Um, But, of course, many of the examples in recent history, uh, for example, in South America, of where epidemics were carried from one population to another, those populations are living at quite high density. And so there's there can be a a rapid spread, as we have with COVID today. We're talking about much smaller groups spaced out on the landscape. So I'm not sure how much that could have run through a whole population and finished them off. And what's interesting is the inverse, that actually... Obviously, having evolved in Africa, we didn't have any immunity to the diseases outside of Africa. The Neanderthals, having evolved there, had evolved natural immunities to many of the local diseases. And it seems likely that one of the advantages, if you like, of interbreeding with Neanderthals was we picked up some of their immune systems. And so maybe that's why early waves of Homo sapiens failed to to settle. Well, yeah. I mean, they may have just been too small in number and they yeah. couldn't cope with the climate changes uh, any better than the Neanderthals could. And they just disappeared again. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, by interbreeding with Neanderthals, we got a quick fix to our immune systems outside of Africa and that helped us survive. Cause it's still impacting on COVID, isn't it? It's claimed that there are some variants which have derived from Neanderthals, which improve uh, your resistance to COVID and others which, which act against it. And it's been even claimed that in different, because of course Neanderthal DNA is spread right across, uh, everyone outside of Africa has it in the Americas, in, in Australia, in Europe and so on. So certainly those different variants could actually be helping or hindering, um, the spread of COVID in, in modern human populations. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's quite possible. So yes the Neanderthal DNA is is affecting our immune systems outside of Africa, and still is today. And it's possible that some autoimmune conditions are also linked with the presence of Neanderthal DNA. So in a sense, our immune systems are are too active, and they even turn in on themselves. And that's also a possibility.
1: So they're not just prehistory. I think that is absolutely the perfect note on which to end. And Chris, thanks so much for that.
0: Um, Can't thank you enough. Tom, do you want to do your impersonation now?
1: We hope you've enjoyed... Uh, listening to this episode of The Rest is History and we'll look forward to seeing you uh, next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's RestIsHistoryPod.com